Okay. So today we are back in the book of Luke. Uh, we finished our Advent series on uh, the first chapter of the Gospel of John. And so today, uh, after a bit of a hiatus, we are making our way back into the book of Luke. We are in Luke chapter 22, verses 24 through 30. Luke 22, 24 through 30. We come back after a very long intermission uh, to the scene in the upper room with Jesus and his disciples. If you remember, before we uh, started our Advent series, we uh, looked at the, the instance where Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper during Passover. Uh, and we come now to the very next scene in our text. If you would, read with me Luke chapter 22, verses 24 through 30. A dispute also arose among them, talking of the disciples, as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at table, or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you would be with us today as we study your word, as we study Luke chapter 22, these, uh, these words that Jesus has given us, that uh, this instance that we have here, I pray that, uh, that this will be a time for us to see what it means to be a part of your kingdom. And Lord, I pray that today we would be impacted by the gospel. I pray as I preach this morning that you would uh, guide my words, that you would speak through me by the Holy Spirit, that this would not be mere uh, words of men that have no effect, but that uh, the Holy Spirit would move in this time as we study your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So I've titled my sermon today, Topsy-Turvy Day. And for those of you Disney fans in the room, you might recognize this reference. It is a reference to the Hunchback of Notre Dame uh, back in what I consider to be Disney's heyday, the, the days of Hercules and Aladdin and uh, those great movies. I believe some have called it the Disney Renaissance. It was an awesome time in the, uh, the realm of Disney movies, I think. Um, but this, this topsy-turvy day, which comes from the Hunchback of Notre Dame movie, if you remember, it was a day in which they would celebrate and, and really turn society on its head where everything in society was reversed on topsy-turvy day, and they would celebrate what they called the Feast of Fools, where foolishness was seen as high class, and where uh, ugliness was seen as beauty, and where stupidity was seen as intelligence, in this wild festival of fools when they celebrated topsy-turvy day. And at the end of topsy-turvy day, you'll remember that they always crowned the king of fools, Right? And, and ultimately, it was usually some guy who was wearing a mask, acting silly, looking really hideous, whatever. Uh, but what, was, what essentially was the goal of this day was to take things, take the normal course of things of society and turn it on its head. Everything was topsy-turvy on topsy-turvy day in the Hunchback of Notre Dame. 
And I've titled my sermon, Topsy-Turvy Day, because there is a very real sense in which Jesus Christ has taken the wisdom of the world, the wisdom of society around us, and he has turned it topsy-turvy. He has flipped it on its head to where what it means to be a part of God's kingdom, what it means to be great in God's kingdom, is completely opposite of what it means to be great in the world. Our main idea for today is this. The qualifications for leadership in God's economy look radically different from those in the economy of the world. We, we see from our text here today, Jesus, indeed, turning the wisdom of the world on its head, even referencing the rulers of the world, and even referencing what it means to be great in the world and saying, in the kingdom of God, that is not so. This is because to be great in the kingdom of God requires something that is not required to be great in the world. To be great in God's kingdom requires humility. To lead correctly in God's economy means to be a servant. It means to serve other people, to serve your brothers and sisters. In such, the main idea of of what it means to be great in the kingdom of God, to lead in the kingdom of God, means that we are called to be servant leaders. Servant leadership is what is required in God's economy. We see the contrast between man's economy and God's economy in our first three verses here, in verses 24 through 26. We see man's economy versus God's economy. What's amazing is what prompted this discussion, what prompted Jesus to enter into this discussion was a foolish and petty debate on the hand of the disciples. We see in verse 24 what was going on. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. What a petty, silly, foolish thing to be debating. Like there was an actual dispute here that these disciples were legitimately arguing over who was going to be the greatest, who was the greatest among them. And this is absolutely wild to me. It's wild to me for various reasons. I mean, namely, they have been with Jesus through his whole ministry. They've seen how he acts. They've seen how he behaves. And yet, after seeing all of that, not only that, thinking about what they just witnessed, like I said, we've been on kind of a long intermission here in, this, in the midst of this scene in the upper room where they've celebrated the Passover. He instituted the Lord's Supper. And the disciples have just witnessed all of that. This is directly after that, the same instance. They've just seen Jesus celebrate the Passover, not only celebrate it, but take the Passover and turn it into something totally different, saying, this is my body, this bread, which was broken for you, taking the wine and saying, this wine is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you. Jesus doing something absolutely unheard of and rearranging the Passover to mean something totally new, instituting the Lord's Supper that we still celebrate today as we will at the end of this service. They then heard Jesus proclaim that one of them sitting at the table was going to betray him. And in verse 23, we see that this discussion began as a questioning of one another as to which one of them it would be that would would betray Jesus. And what verse 24 shows us is that that discussion quickly turned from that, forgetting everything that just happened in the upper room, and they begin arguing amongst themselves as to who is the greatest. After all that these disciples have just witnessed, they're now selfishly debating over which of them 
is the most awesome? Which of them is to be most highly esteemed? The disciples were behaving in this instance just like most people in the world. They were desiring to be made famous. They were desiring a name for themselves, to be respected, to have power. Very common desires in the world around us and in the world around them in their time too. You see, Jesus' disciples in this instance were thinking in terms of man's economy rather than God's economy. This was possibly due to the fact that the disciples, after all they had seen, all that Jesus had taught them, all that they had experienced, maybe still had a remnant in their mind, an inkling of how Jesus was going to usher in his kingdom. Maybe he was going to do it by force. Maybe it was going to be by political means. Maybe we would have an opportunity to exercise power over the people around us. Perhaps they still did think that maybe Jesus was going to pull off some sort of political power grab. They certainly were not thinking in terms of what he had actually said he was going to do. But then in verses 25 through 26, Jesus lays out for his disciples and for us the contrast between the economy of the world and the economy in the kingdom of God. Look at verses 25 through 26. Jesus says, And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. Jesus points out to to his disciples what it looks like to be a ruler among the Gentiles. This is how the world's economy works. These people exercise lordship over them. They rule over them in a domineering and, and, and strong manner, with a strong arm, with uh, no remorse, with no mercy, and with themselves as the concern, and then they give themselves false titles of benefactor, of of a blessing to the people. But then in verse 26, Jesus says, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. Jesus here is reiterating a theme that we have heard him say over and over and over again throughout the Gospels. This idea that the least among you will be the greatest. That those who humble themselves will be exalted. He told his disciples, when you go to a feast, don't take the seat at the head of the table, but rather take the lowest, so that when the host comes, you may be exalted in front of all and taken to a higher place. In other words, Jesus says that to be great in the kingdom of God, you must ultimately be a meek slave. This is what he says. This is why he says you... You must, the greatest among you must become as the youngest, the, the most meek, the most unworthy, the most humble, and the leader among you as the one who serves. He essentially tells them, you must be humble, meek, slaves, servants. To the world, the phrase servant leader that I am proposing and putting forward in God's economy is an oxymoron, really. You don't become a leader by being a humble by being a servant, by being a slave to other people, the world's economy would call you a doormat in that case, not a leader. I mean, just look at the examples that we are overwhelmingly given by the world around us. Just consider uh, the, the majority of presidents that, we have, presidents that we've had. Although we've had some wonderful, great presidents, humility is not always a defining mark of these leaders. Look at the athletes around us, people that carry such Wait, are so respected, such, uh, in many cases, become idols in the lives of the people around us. Again, in the realm of professional athletics, humility is not a defining trait. 
<laughs> Look at social media personalities that, again, carry so much weight in the world around us today to the point that they are called influencers. These are the people that, by and large, are most influential in the culture around us. Is humility a defining trait for these people? I would say overwhelmingly no, especially when you consider the overwhelming number of these sort of influencers are oftentimes influencing by means of their looks and their appearance and, and the things that they do in that way. This is what leadership, what greatness looks like in the kingdom of men, in the economy of men. It looks like this. It looks like pride. It looks like arrogance. It looks like I'm going to do whatever I can do to get where I want to be. But this is not true in the kingdom of God. Christian leadership is servant leadership. The world's leaders are marked by pride, while godly leaders are examples of humility. So then, for those of us in here today that desire to be leaders, that desire to be godly individuals, those who lead in a godly and right way, do not expect to make it in this world. Do not expect fame and glory and power and status in this world because this is not the recipe for that. Jesus is telling his disciples, what I'm giving you is not the recipe for worldly leadership, worldly fame, worldly status, but for greatness in the kingdom of God. Take Moses, for example. You'd be hard-pressed hard to find a, a more greater human leader in the Bible than Moses, the one who led the Israelites out of bondage, who, who crossed the Red Sea, parted the Red Sea by God's work for the Israelites, the one who led them right up to the promised land. This, one of the greatest leaders the Bible has ever shown us. In fact, even today in, in Judaism, there is hardly a name that is more widely respected than Moses. And you know how the Bible describes Moses, what his defining trait was? We see it in Numbers 12, 3, where the word of God says that Moses was more humble, more meek than any man on earth. Now, supposedly Moses wrote numbers, so it seems hard to me to understand how he could be humble and say Moses was the most humble man who ever lived. If I ever said that, everyone would say you're definitely not the most humble man who ever lived. But yet, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses writes, and the word of God defines Moses. His defining trait was that he's the most meek man on earth. And this is what greatness looks like in the kingdom of God. It looks like humility. It looks like meekness. It looks a lot less like the cultural leaders that we see in the world around us, these influencers that we see on social media today, and looks a lot more like Moses. It looks a lot more like what we see of Jesus in the upper room, which is why point number two is that servant leaders take up Jesus' towel of servanthood to meet the needs of others. We see in verse 27, Jesus says, for who is greater? The one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? That being in the realm of men. Jesus says, but I am among you as the one who serves. Jesus is acknowledging again here, hey, this is not greatness in the world. Greatness in the world looks like the guy sitting at the table being served. But what am I doing? I am the one here serving. Luke records this statement for us, but in in John chapter 13, we see Jesus enact this statement right in front of his disciples as he washes their feet. If you want to turn with me to Luke chapter 13, let's read Luke chapter 13, verses 3 through 5, and see this statement enacted. 
Luke, or excuse me, John, John 13, 3 through 5, John 13. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose up from supper. He laid aside his outer garment and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. This is a wild, wild scene that the disciples were witnessing right now. And the way John writes it, you notice, if you, if you read John, and even in this chapter, you notice that in this instant, John, even in the way he writes, slows down the scene where he begins to describe detail by detail what is happening. And things almost go into slow motion where Jesus rises from the table, goes and takes off his outer garment and puts on a towel. He takes on the role, even the, the very garments of a slave, and begins to pour water into a basin and then methodically wash the feet of his disciples. This would have been an incredibly awkward scene for the disciples, but also a shocking scene. As Jesus, the Messiah, the one who has come to usher in the kingdom of God, is now bending down on his hands and knees, washing their feet and wiping them with the towel around his waist. This was a wild and and to be honest, shameful scene in the disciples' mind that they were now witnessing. But then look at what Jesus says later in John 13. In verses 14 and 15 of John 13, Jesus says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Jesus then goes on to make the point, yeah, this thing that you just saw me do that was so shameful in your eyes, that's so shameful in the eyes of the world, the role of a slave, this is what I have called you to. For a servant is not greater than his master, he goes on to say. You ought to do exactly as I am doing. I have given you an example to follow. This is what it means to be a servant leader, to be great in the kingdom of God. I think it can be very easy for us when we think about what it means to be humble, when we think about a meek person in our mind. I think what oftentimes we think of is we kind of mess up the word meek or humble to mean someone who is shy and introverted or someone who never brings attention to themselves or can make his way through a situation completely unnoticed, kind of a, a fly on the wall kind of thing. And I think that really is a misunderstanding of what it means to be humble, of what it means to be meek of what it means to be like a servant or a slave, as Jesus says. I think that's a bad understanding. Our understanding of humility does not mean that we keep our head down, that we blend in, that no one ever notices us, that we try to make as little noise in this life as possible. That's not humility. Humility is what Jesus is doing here. What Jesus is calling us to here is he is calling us to action. He's not giving us a permit for laziness. In fact, the expectation is that our humble service will have a great impact, that it will make waves. The life Jesus is calling us to live doesn't mean that we should try and go through life without being noticed. And if that's what you think humility, if that's what you think meekness is, then I want you to just try and imagine exactly what it would be like. If you're having, think for example yesterday when you were celebrating Christmas and you were eating dinner or lunch with your family or with your friends and if someone all of a sudden gets up from the table and goes and takes off 
their shirt, puts on a towel, and then begins to wash everyone's feet at the table. Everyone would notice what was happening, right? It would not go unnoticed. It would, in fact, cause quite a stir. It would cause an impact. It would be awkward. It would be weird if someone were to do that. The fact of the matter is, to be a servant leader, to be humble, to be great in the kingdom of God in this way, will certainly cause attention. It will certainly make waves. What should happen is that our desire to serve other people should look so radically different from the world, even to the point of being shameful almost, to the point where people say, that person's a doormat. That's what it should look like, to where people notice and they say, what is it about this person? What makes them act this way? What makes them behave in such a strange, foreign way than the way most people normally act? It means we serve out of a desire to bring attention to Christ rather than to ourselves. Our service, our humility should cause attention. But the, the point is not to cause attention or bring attention to ourselves, but to magnify Jesus Christ in the midst of it. So that when someone asks, hey, what is it about you that you're behaving this way? Our answer ought to be because of what Christ did for me, of how he lowered himself. Point number three is that servant leaders humble themselves and wait for God to exalt them. One of the, hard, one of the hardest parts of dealing with a text like this, a text that calls us to humility, to service, is that it gets right at the heart of what our problem is. It strikes right at the core of the human heart, a blow at our very nature. In a lot of ways, it's like telling a wolf not to howl or a rooster not to crow. You wouldn't have much luck in doing that because it's a part of their nature. It is in the nature of a wolf to howl. It is in the nature of a rooster to crow. And in the same way, it is in the nature of human beings who are born sinful, born broken, born with, born with original sin. It is in our nature to think of ourselves first. It is in our nature to be prideful. It is in our nature to desire greatness and desire to be known. Pride is a part of our fallen nature. All human beings are predisposed to it. All of us. Now, while some human beings are predisposed to other things, some are better at certain things, some are naturally gifted, some are naturally um, predisposed to other various things, but by and large, across the board, every single human being is predisposed to pride. Yet Christ here is teaching us that we are supposed to go against that nature, do opposite of that. And the question is, how can we do that? How is it possible to go against our sinful human nature Nature, how can we make this change? How do we rearrange our natural setting of selfishness and pride to one of humility and service? That's the question. And the answer is that apart from Christ, we can't. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we are unable to humble ourselves. We are unable to glorify, magnify Christ. We are unable to put anyone above ourselves. We are only able to put ourselves first and be prideful. This is why we need God to give us a new heart, to make us a new creation, to enable us to be able to put off pride and put on humility just like Christ. 
Christ is our example to follow, but that example is impossible to reach unless he enables us to reach it. As I was thinking through how to correctly preach this text, how to um, do so in a way that's glorifying to God, that is correct, that is faithful to all of Scripture, I couldn't shake the, the fear that there would be people here who would hear me saying to do this or to do that, that, that ultimately people would leave here learning only what they're supposed to do. And that's not what I want to leave you guys with in this sermon. So let me say this, that if you leave today thinking that you need to serve others in order to make God happy with you, that you need to uh, serve others in order to receive a place of honor in the kingdom, in order to inherit God's kingdom, you must do good to others, you must humble yourself, then I think you've missed the point. And I think I failed to get it across. The point is that we need to make sure that we keep the main thing the main thing. The fact that the kingdom of God has been inaugurated through Christ's work on the cross is something that we must never miss, that we must never forget. Even as we think about what it means to be great, what it means to be a leader in God's kingdom, we must never forget the fact that his kingdom is only able to be made possible because of Christ's work on the cross. The best model that we're given in Scripture of what this humility and exaltation looks like is in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. You can turn there if you'd like. Philippians 2, 5 through 11, where we see this. Have this mind among yourselves, Paul writes, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is our ultimate example of humility, but this is also the main thing. It's our example to follow, which is why Paul brings it up to the church in Philippi, but it's also the means by which we are able to humble ourselves. In Jesus' atoning work and his humiliation to come down, to empty himself, to take on the form of a servant, to take on even the death of the cross, is the means by which we are able to enter into the kingdom of God. It's the means by which we are able to fight against our sin, including the sin of pride. It's the means by which we are able to follow in his example. We see this just a few verses later in Philippians in verse uh, 13, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is not something that we can muster up in and of ourselves. We can't do this on our own, but only by Christ working in us can we humble ourselves the way Christ humbled himself. It's the only way, only the one who has been changed by the gospel, restored to new life, can even begin to serve and to humble themselves. Which brings us finally to point number four. We don't serve to make the world a better place, ultimately, but we serve because there is a better place than this world. The reality of the kingdom is our motivation. Not only is it our motivation, but the work that Christ did on the cross to make this kingdom possible is the means by which we are able to humbly serve the Lord. We see this even in how Jesus 
graciously answers his disciples in the end of our passage here. After all the disciples got to partake in and witness in the upper room so far, they are now arguing over who is the greatest. This petty, this silly argument that's taking place now. And consider how Jesus responds. And by the way, this wasn't the first time that the disciples were making this argument. Actually, at least two other times they were arguing over who was the greatest. To the point that James and John at one point even come to Christ and ask him for a favor. They say, hey, can we sit at your right and left hand in the kingdom? And Jesus, at this point, responds so graciously. A lot more graciously than I would. If I were Jesus, I would have been much more annoyed than what Jesus seems to be at this point. I would have gone into like parent mode. For parents in here, it's like kids when they're arguing over something. And what do we do sometimes as a parent? We say, you know what? I'm just going to take it away. That way you can't argue over it anymore. I'll show you. I feel like that's what I would have done over, over this. If I were Jesus, I'm like, I'm not going to make any of you great in my kingdom. What do you think of that? Stick it to them that way. That's what I would have done. I would have been so annoyed with the disciples. And yet Jesus doesn't do that. Instead of getting angry with them, instead of rebuking them harshly, he explains to them the way of the economy of God. He explains to them how things work in his kingdom. Again, this isn't the first time he's had to explain this. And yet graciously, patiently, he explains it to them again and offers for them a comforting word assuring them that they would be in places of honor in the kingdom. Despite their pettiness, despite their pride, despite their desire for greatness, even though they were just demonstrating that they were not very good at humbling themselves, Jesus says to them, points them to Christ, points, points them to his faithfulness and to his grace when he promises them. He says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. What a gracious and merciful God this is that we serve. That despite these disciples' wickedness, their sinfulness, their pride, despite our pride, our wickedness, our sinfulness, which we know, just like the disciples, is ever-present, is always there, is constantly rearing its head, we are given grace and kindness and mercy. We're on the edge at this point in Luke 22. We're on the edge of the most significant work of atonement that Jesus is about to go through, that he is about to make. And here, Jesus is offering to his disciples a word of encouragement, kindness, grace. He's showing them his unmatched grace and gentleness and faithfulness as he is about to go to the cross to save this bunch of selfish wretches. Not this bunch only, but this bunch also. He is so kind to graciously save a wretch like you and like me, even though we are just like the disciples. We are constantly looking out for ourselves. We are constantly wanting power. We are constantly wanting greatness. We are constantly forgetting the example we are given in Christ Jesus. The fact that Jesus offers this world, the fact that he offers comfort and grace to his disciples and to anyone who is sinful and wicked, people who do a bad job of humbling themselves, people who dwell on the kingdom of man rather than the kingdom of God, ought to bring us a lot of hope because we are those people. As I close this morning, I want to emphasize as much as I possibly can that the message today, 
that we have seen Christ giving his disciples is not a message that says simply go and do. That says simply go and serve. Go humble yourself and God will give you the kingdom if you humble yourself. That's not the message today. The message today is that if you are broken, sinful, and a a selfish mess, which we all are, God loves you anyway. He has provided a sacrifice for you in Christ Jesus so that you too can be brought into his kingdom, can have a place of honor in God's kingdom. In light of that, go. Be imitators of Christ by humbling yourselves in service to others, just as Jesus did. We are called to humble ourselves. We are given the example of Christ to follow us as believers. But we are also given the means by which to do it. God working through us. And we are also given grace like the disciples in that when we fail to do it, God is still merciful, that he is still loving, that he is still kind, and that his promises are never revoked. And for some of you in here today, This starts with humbly confessing before God that you are a sinner, repenting of your sin, and asking God for mercy and grace. Some of you in here today need to start this walk of humility by God's grace. Need to start that today by humbly confessing before the Lord that you are a sinner, repenting of that sin, and crying out to him for his mercy and his grace, which he is so faithful to lavish out upon you. The same God that was patient and merciful and gracious with these disciples will be gracious and merciful with you too. If the Lord is working in your heart today to cause you to see your sin, to cause you to see your arrogance, to cause you to recognize the fact that you are broken, that you are a sinner, that you are in need of salvation, I would encourage you today, don't put it off any longer. But in this time, in this moment, humble yourself. Confess your sin before the Lord. Repent of that sin and cast yourself into the arms of God. For he stands there ready and willing and able to receive you. Embrace the loving arms of God. All of the service, all of the good works, all of the things that we can do mean nothing apart from this. If you are not resting in the arms of God, then you are sitting under his wrath. However many good works you've done, however much you think you've humbled yourself, however good you think you are, it is foolishness, it is folly. You are under God's wrath unless you have been saved through the work of Christ on the cross. This is where the exaltation in the kingdom of God starts. It starts at the foot of the cross. Let's pray.